Well, have you ever seen a duck moving gracefully across a calm, sunlit pond? Of course you have. But have you ever seen what goes on beneath the surface? (laughs) If you were to stick a GoPro camera to a belly of a duck, you would see their web feet frantically propelling at a furious pace. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is how we are prone to live our lives. We put on appearances like everything is going well. Nothing wrong here. Meanwhile, anxieties and worries abound. We work hard to conform to the outward appearances and rules and regulations of life. Meanwhile, deep down, we are moving at a furious pace. Today, God wants to take us deeper into his grace so that we can rest assured. Paul does so by examining the law of God. And what we will see is that the law is good, but only so far as it takes us deeper into the grace of God. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. What shall we say that... The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do the thing, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I do not want, excuse me, (laughs) this is a hard one to read, isn't it? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you do give us your word. We're thankful that you do give us your commands. They are good. Um, They are holy and righteous and good. We thank you for that. Help us to properly understand, though, how the law is to be uh, administered to our lives. Uh, May we learn all the more uh, to run towards grace uh, and to run towards Christ, our greatest deliverer. We uh, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at two different points. Um, First, we're going to look at the battle without, and then we're going to look at the battle within. And before we do that, I want to just tell you a quick story I think kind of illustrates both of these points. Uh, When I was a youth director back in in St. Louis at Central uh, Presbyterian Church, there was this this, um, single mom and her middle school-aged son who just started coming to our church. And after the worship service, I was driving them. We're all going on a service project, and we're driving along in my car. And um, the mother shared with me that she was troubled and confused by something that Dr. Doriani had said in his sermon. See, um, Dr. Doriani had mentioned in his sermon that he himself had struggled with a, a particular sin. And she turned and said to me, um, something you guys would never, ever have to say before, but she turned to me and said, how is it? that a pastor sins. (laughs) For her, sin was something that only the worst in society do. She didn't see herself as a sinner, and she couldn't figure out how in the world this pastor struggled with sin. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're like this woman. You see sin as being someone else's problem. Perhaps for you, this first main point, the battle without, may prove to be life-changing. For most of you here, um, the battle without is over, and but now there is a battle within. And you are able to identify and understand what Pastor Doriani and Pastor Middlecoff here, as well as other Christians experience, which is the ongoing battle within, a battle with sin that still lingers. But either way, this morning, Paul wants to take us deeper into God's grace so that we can rejoice like Paul at the end of the passage and proclaim, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. First, the the battle without. What we need to see about God's law, his good and and holy law, is that his commands um, are given to us so that we will see our need for grace. See, when God's law has its proper effect upon you, it doesn't give you life. Rather, as Paul says here, it kills you off. The law of God battles against you so that the old you can be killed off and the new you can come alive in Christ. So the law is good because it it drives you deeper to the grace of God. Now, the woman I mentioned earlier, she couldn't understand that a minister's minister's sin. Uh, she, was, she was blind to her own spiritual condition. And she's like many people in America today. Though she doesn't give much thought to God in sin, she's in her own mind pretty sure that it doesn't apply to her. She's by and large a good person, or so she thinks. 
She doesn't cheat on her taxes. She doesn't have loud parties that blare music at her neighbor's houses to the wee hours. She hasn't memorized the Ten Commandments, but she's confident that they don't apply to her. She's alive, or so she thinks. Many people today live this way. Perhaps you. What she needs is what Paul needed. Paul needed the law of God to wage battle from without. He describes this battle in verses 7 through 12. And he begins in verse 7 by asking a question. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Now, to understand what he's getting at, earlier Paul had said what? He said that the Christian has died to sin. And then next he said the Christian had died to the law. And so he's just answering a question he knows is in his audience's mind. Our tendency is to conflate the two. Okay, we've died to sin, we've died to law. So does that make the law sin, right? Is there something wrong with God's law? He answers, by no means. In verses 7 through 11, he answers this question. But in verse 12, he comes to his conclusion. What does he conclude in verse 12? He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, if I hadn't just read this verse to you, and if I were to say who or what is holy, righteous, and good, what would your answer most likely be? God. God is holy and righteous and good. And so when we think of his law, we must think that his law is also holy and righteous and good. Why? Because it reveals to us God's perfect character. It reveals to us the mind of God, which is holy and righteous and good. Now, here's where we get the law of God wrong. We get the law of God wrong when we think that God gave us the Ten Commandments and all the hundreds of other commands in Scripture, that he gave them to us so that by doing them, we would become holy and righteous and good. No, Paul tells us that the purpose of the law, which is holy and righteous and good, isn't that we would do them and then feel good about ourselves and pat ourselves on the back, but know that we would wrestle with the law of God, that we would see how spiritually dead we are, and that we would turn to God in his grace and experience uh, newness of life in Christ. In verses 7 through 11, Paul shows us that the law achieves its purpose of driving us to Christ. What we see is the law isn't sin, but there is a connection between the law and sin. Paul says there's three things that the law does. First, the law of God reveals sin. Verse 7, Paul says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And earlier in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right, so the law of God reveals or exposes us to be Sinners, when we open up the law and we study it, at least that's its proper effect. Perhaps you're here today and you take offense to the word sin or exception to it. I get it. No one likes to consider themselves a sinner. Um, We like to call what we do mistakes, and uh, and then we act all surprised. We don't even know, how in the world did that ever happen? I don't know, you know. (laughs) Never mind the fact that we did it a week ago and a couple days ago, and chances are we're probably going to do it again next week, right? We all, we all sin. Our problem is we, we don't often think honestly about it. Maybe that's why Paul mentions the 10th commandment here instead of the 6th commandment. The 6th commandment is what? Thou shalt not murder. <laughs> Most of us uh, um, don't have a problem with that. At least I like to think. Most of us technically do not violate that law, uh, thou shalt not murder. But with regards to coveting, does that not really hit home? 
See, you shall not covet cannot be obeyed by merely at merely a technical level. It goes straight to the heart. Coveting is something that every human being, other than Christ, commits. To covet is to desire something that you do not have possession of. Often it's things you can never have possession of, like your neighbor's wife. To covet is to be discontented with what you have because you have, because what someone else has is what will make you really happy. Ray Ortland Jr. says this, he says, to covet is to see someone else with the body I wish I had, the brains I wish I had, the money I wish I had, the recording contract I wish I had, the breaks I wish I had, the reputation I wish I had, and so forth. All this frustration and envy and resentment and anger my heart is producing as I walk through everyday life, that is covetedness. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you paused and said, hey, I know what's going on right now. I'm coveting. (laughs) We don't pause very often to consider our emotions and how we respond to others' well-being. Coveting is uh, an active reality that we rarely notice in ourselves. In fact, if God didn't in his law tell us that coveting was a sin, we would probably find some way to elevate it to a virtue, wouldn't we? We would elevate our self-pity into some false virtue of self-esteem. We would justify our selfishness. We would become indignant towards those who possess what we covet. And our indignation would become, in our own eyes, a righteous virtue. Those one percenters. We would mollify our racing minds with the thoughts that we really are the good ones. After all, I'm not taking a sledgehammer to that man's Bentley, so I'm okay. But we're not okay. And we need to know we're not okay. That's the purpose of God's law. To show us, it reveals our sin to us. Second, the law of God actually provokes sin in us. Now, this sounds crazy, but it's true. Look at verse 8. Paul says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul is saying that when the commandments of God come to us, they actually aggravate and stir up sin in us. It seems odd. seems weird. How, how, does this, how is this true? If the law of God is holy and righteous and good, how does it provoke sin in us? The answer lies in the fact that there is something inherently wrong with human nature. And the word for it is perversity. It's not a word we use very often, but perversity is the desire to do something for no other reason than it is forbidden. Mark Twain said that if a mule thinks he knows what you want him to do, he will do just the opposite. And Twain himself admitted that he was perverse like this. He, was, he said he was often mean, just for the sake of meanness. When I was a boy, a family friend of ours was a detective in the St. Louis Police Department. He told me of some gang violence that he was investigating. And he said that just the day before, a gang member had driven up in his car alongside a complete stranger sitting in his car, took out a gun and shot him in the head. 
They apprehended the perpetrator. He admitted he knew that what he had done was a violation of the law. And when asked why, he told the detective, because I could. Now, most of us, before coming to faith in Christ, weren't murderers whose perversity was as obvious as that. But perversity was there nonetheless. Most people are like C.S. Lewis's dog, Tim. Yeah, C.S. Lewis had a dog named Tim, an, an Irish setter. Here's what he said of his dog. He never actually obeyed you. He sometimes agreed with you. That's how most of us are. We want to go about living our lives our own way. We will agree with God so long as his rules line up with what we want to achieve. But obedience to God? That's just not what people are into. And so here's how God's holy and righteous and good law actually provokes sin in us. God's laws are a threat to our autonomy. It says that there is one greater who has ultimate authority, and it's not you. And we in our perversity say, no, 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 I'll prove who's boss. (laughs) Watch me not do it. See, the law actually provokes sin in us. We come to hear of one of God's laws and we willfully disobey. Why is that? Because it's God's law. Our rebellious hearts wish to demonstrate that we are not under his authority. And so the more God's law is placed before us, the more it provokes sin in us. Can you see it like that? So the law of God reveals and the law provokes. Thirdly, the law kills. The law of God will kill you off, if you would but let it, so that you can come alive in the grace of God. That's what Paul's getting at in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, Paul says that he was alive apart from the law. Now, this, was, this is Paul speaking experientially from his perspective before coming to faith to Christ. He felt alive, even though he really fully wasn't. See, when you're living a life for your own glory, unhindered by the pressure of the law, you feel alive, right? I remember in my mid-twenties, before I came to faith in Christ, I was my own boss. Literally, I had my own business. I was my own boss. And you couldn't tell me what to do. Unless, of course, I thought it was something helpful for me that would benefit Mark Middlecoff. I felt young and alive, free and powerful. So too Paul. But at some point, this commandment brought to death Paul's feeling of aliveness. Paul's eyes became open to seeing himself as one who covets. And his whole way of living now became seen as as what it really was, a sham. Little web duck feet paddling under the water. Putting on the outside this image of a good and holy, righteous man. But all the while underneath, paddling along to prove his own worth and righteousness. God in his grace killed off the old Paul. In words reminiscent of Adam in the garden, in verse 11, he says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. The law, when it has a proper effect upon you, kills you off. 
kills the old you off, the moralistic you, or the one who says, uh, I'm not bound by any laws. Whoever that is, God, God in his grace kills you off. And it leaves you crying out for deliverance, for grace above. See, it's not until you see that you really have a sin problem that you actually really see yourself as having a need for a savior. That's the point Paul is making. That's the war without. And the question this morning is simple. is Have you experienced this war without? Has the law killed you off that you may come alive in Christ? For most of us here, this battle without is over. God's holy, righteous, and good law has killed us off, and we've come alive in Christ. But there is a battle that wages on, and the turf has become a little more personal. With regards to the battle within, here's what we need to know. Every believer, hear me there, every believer battles against sin within. This battle goes on, and deliverance from it is only by the grace of God through Christ Jesus. Verses 13 to 25 is a lot of ground to cover. I just want to hit a few main points. First, some Christians here believe that this person in verses 13 through 25, well, that just couldn't be the world-famous Apostle Paul, right? Or it had to have been Paul before he became a Christian. See, many think, wow, Paul, he's like the model of, of Christianity. He never would have struggled with sin, right? Surely he laughs at sin as he watches it, watches it disappear in the rearview mirror, right? The woman who heard Dr. Doriani say he battled with sin misunderstood the Christian life. And unfortunately, so too many Christians. Many Christians are like the boys back in my youth group who confided in me with some sin that they struggled with, and then they would look to me for words of reassurance. Mark, when will it be? When will I become the good Christian that I know I'm going to be, and I will no longer have to struggle with sin? At first, my answer would would um, trouble them. But in the end, there was cause for hope. See, this battle with sin that all Christians undergo will not go away until Christ returns or, or until you die, whichever comes first. But we need to know this. You and I are not hopeless, nor are we helpless. The same grace that saved you will sustain you. That's what Paul wants us to see. Let's observe Paul's war within. We'll just hit a few things. In verse 14, Paul says that um, though we know the law is spiritual, he says, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 15, he says, I don't know my own actions. I do not do what I want to do. That is, live out the law of God. But I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18, Paul says that he knows nothing good uh, dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And Paul summarizes this war within in the last sentence. He says, uh, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There are many Christians who, perhaps you've heard a sermon on this, that, that will who will say that this is, this is Paul prior to his uh, salvation, or this is just some sort of metaphor, or uh, P- Paul is describing some lower level uh, fleshly or carnal Christian. It's not Paul, and it's, uh, it's, um, it's something you can become, but most Christians aren't. No, I too would be tempted to think that 
there's something about this that tells us that this really isn't Paul as a Christian struggling with sin. I would be tempted to think that if it wasn't for my own heart. So I look at my own life as a Christian, and, and I see Paul's words, and I go, yes, 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 me too. I know the good I ought to do, and I cannot do it. I I want to honor God with my life. I do have a new heart, and yet there's times when I fall flat on my face. Now, Paul is not saying that he, nor I, nor you, don't do good and wonderful things where we honor and glorify God. We do. Like every day we do something praiseworthy. Our hearts really are are new. The problem, though, um, what grieves a Christian man or woman is the fact that, that we often fall way short. I see my own life, this battle that's described here. My own life is a testimony that we Christians know the good we want to do, that we even set our feet in the right direction and often fall flat on our faces. For example, we commit to turning the other cheek at the big family Thanksgiving celebration. We tell God we want to honor him with our lips, that we want to promote peace within the family. Then we hear something at the dinner table that sets us on edge. We get defensive or hypercritical. And before we can say, shut the door, our mouths open with some bitter comment that leaves everybody in silence. Christian, you've experienced things like that, right? You desire to rejoice in all circumstances, but then your college roommate calls to tell you that she's having her third baby. And you aren't even married yet. Your mind races with covetous thoughts. If we are but honest with ourselves, Paul's experience here is our experience too, if you are in Christ. Please understand this. If you are a Christian, this is your experience. Unbelievers do not have this war waging within (laughs) Sin is a modus operandi, and and everyone pats each other on the back for doing it. The reason why you struggle with sin is because you have been made new in Christ Jesus. And yet, sin remains. Let's take a minute to look at this battle that wages inside the believer. How is it that Paul can say in in the last chapter, 6.14, how can he say, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law but under grace? How can he say that in 6.14, but here in 7.14 say, I am of the flesh sold under sin? I think a good way to illustrate that is to look at the end of World War II. For all intents and purposes, on D-Day, which was um, June 6, 1944, the war in, in Europe was over. The Allied forces, in conquering northern France, declared to the Nazis that, well, the the war was a lost cause, right? And yet, even though the war was essentially over, battles raged on until VE Day, Victory Europe Day, which was May 8, 1945. That's when the Nazis formally surrendered. For the Christian, understand this. The war against sin and death is over for you in a real and true way. When Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you, 
For now you are not under law, but under grace. That means you have been set free by Christ to actually live a God-honoring and pleasing life. And in Christ, God is pleased with you. We've truly died in Christ and, and risen a new life in him. And yet, we, we as Christians await for our VE day. Paul's going to talk about it in Romans 8. You can read ahead if you want. Uh, and in the VE day is when Christ returns and God restores this world to its perfection. And sin will no longer be on this earth. And guess what? Sin will no longer dwell in God's people to struggle against. Twice in verses 17 and 20, Paul says, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul isn't blame shifting. He isn't saying, oh, well, the devil made me do it. No, Paul is taking full responsibility for his actions. And as Christians, we must do so too. But yet we must also see that in Christ, we have had a, an identity change. And yet there remains within our fallen bodies vestiges of sinful impulses that remains. Paul calls it his flesh. The flesh refers to that, that base or fallen impulses that all human beings are born with because we're all born in Adam. Now the image that Paul presents here in verses 17 through 20 is that sin has no legitimate claim upon the believer. Sin's presence in the believer's life is like a squatter. You see that in verse 17 and 20. It, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. A squatter is someone who moves onto someone else's property and lives there as if it's his own. And when a squatter takes up residency, they're oh so hard to eject. Leon Morris makes this point. He says, sin is pictured as having taken up residence, but not as an honored guest. So Paul is personifying sin. It is in some ways a separate entity, even though it is within him. But it is not external to him. This sin lives in him. And though it is not the real Paul, it is what produces the acts which the real Paul hates so much. Sin is out of character for the believer, even though it's so difficult to be rid of it entirely. Why does Paul go to such great lengths to share with intimacy his struggles against sin? Well, he's trying to open our eyes to the ongoing need of grace that all believers share. See, in the first section, Paul showed us that the unbeliever cannot keep the law. And now in this last section, he's showing us that neither can the believer keep the law of God. And so just as the proper response of the unbeliever to God's law is to cry out for deliverance, so too the believer, when unable to satisfy the law, is to cry out for deliverance. Problem is, what do we often do when we fall short? Don't we tend to redouble our efforts? We issue new ultimatums. I'll try this time. I'll, I'll do better this time. And our little web duck feet start paddling as fast as we can. Well, Paul, what is it that Paul wants us to learn? Paul wants us to learn that the only remedy for our hearts is more of God's grace. Paul wants us to learn not to redouble our efforts around the law, but rather to cry out 
in confession and call out for God's grace. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul comes to a proper conclusion regarding himself. You notice he doesn't say, well, on most days I'm pretty good. You know, I got it right. When people see me, they, they, they see the real Paul. I'm, I'm really polished. No. Paul says, Paul, Paul comes to the proper conclusion. He cries out in confession, wretched man that I am. And then he calls out for grace. Who will deliver me? Notice he doesn't say what. What new law, rule, or regulation do I need to press into my life so that I can be that better Christian I know I'm supposed to be? No, he says, who will deliver me? And he knows the answer. It's the same one who has always delivered him. On the day in which he came to faith, and on every day since, as he walked as an apostle. Here's what we need to press deep into our beings this morning. God loves sinners. <laughs> and not just on the day in which you come to faith, but each and every day. God loves sinners. Earlier, Debbie Cathell read um, Jesus' words when Jesus, Jesus said, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know what? If you think you're righteous, Jesus has nothing to say to you. But if you know you're a sinner, and even one who experiences this waging of war within, then he is calling you to his grace. Christian, understand this. Jesus is only calling sinners. So guess what? In you and me, Jesus got what he was looking for. Jesus knows the battle waging inside of you. He knows you fail. But just as he knew his disciples would abandon him at the cross, he knows you and I will succumb numerous times to sin. And yet, he sticks with us. How do we know Jesus sticks with us? Well, look at how Jesus loved his disciples. If you've read the Gospels enough, you will know that Jesus' disciples were dull and slow and faithless. And yet, Jesus did not withhold his grace from them. No, in fact, Jesus actually commended them for how they stuck around him, even though others had abandoned him. In Luke 22, verse 28, which is, which is just right before uh, Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus says this to them. He says, you are those who stayed with me. Wow. Jesus praises his weak and fleshly followers. Jesus simply praises them for what? Staying with him. The great theologian J.C. Ryle comments on this, and he's got a daily devotional called Daily Reading, and it's from, if you're taking notes, it's uh, November 7th. <laughs> um, here's what he writes. It's a little long, but listen closely. It's beautiful. He says, There's something striking in the words of praise, speaking about 
You were those who stayed with me. There's something striking in the words of praise that our Lord gives to his disciples. We know the weakness and infirmity of our Lord's disciples during the whole period of his earthly ministry. We find him frequently reproving their ignorance and lack of faith. He knew full well that within a couple of hours, they were all going to forsake him. But here we find him graciously dwelling on the one good point of their conduct and holding it up to the perpetual notice of the church. They had been faithful to their master, notwithstanding their faults. Their hearts had been right, whatever had been their mistakes. They had clung to him in the day of his humiliation with the great and noble when the great and noble were against him. Therefore, let us rest our souls on this comfortable thought that the mind of Christ is always the same. If we are true believers, let us know that he looks at our graces more than our faults, and he pities our infirmities, and that he will not deal with us according to our sins. Never had a master such poor, weak servants as Christ has. But never had servants such a compassionate and tender master as Christ. Surely we cannot love him too much. We may come short in many things. We may fail in knowledge, faith, courage, and patience. We may stumble many times. But the one thing let us always do, let us love the Lord Jesus with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let us cleave to him with purpose of heart. Christian, you know this. You and I are weak and poor servants of Christ. We come up short in so many ways. We fail in numerous ways. But Christ is a compassionate and tender Lord. When we soak in this grace of God, we no longer look like ducks, putting on a calm and cool exterior, all the while deep down we're frantically trying to keep up an image. The grace of God allows you and me to calm down and rest in Christ. The grace of God allows you and me to sit in front of a mirror and really take an honest, deep look at ourselves without fear. It allows us to say these words, I am far more sinful than I ever dared think, but I'm also far more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than I ever dared dream. Christian, those two things are true of you. You're more sinful than you you ever imagined, and yet, In Christ Jesus, you are more loved than you ever hoped or dreamed. This is where God wants to take his children. He doesn't wish to take us to the law, but to himself. He wants us to cry out in confession, wretched man that I am. He wants us to call out for grace. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He wants us to experience more of his grace so that we can rejoice with Paul. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.
Father, is it true? Is this really how you love us? With a great unconditional love? That in Christ we are so forever cleansed that we take on Christ? Is it true that though we struggle with sin, our Savior is patient with us? It is. It's true. May this be pressed deep into our hearts. May we rest in this grace. May we we be freed up to look at our sin and experience the salvation of our Savior. We pray, amen.